Good weekend? Yeah. How was your weekend? Um, it was good. Yeah. Well, to complain. Okay, so how are we doing with Wordsworth? Like him? Mm -hmm. uh, preface lyrical ballads? Yeah? Okay, good. That, that the deepest of all interpretations, yes. Um, yeah, preface lyrical ballads in a way is, the, is a manifesto for modern poetry, for poetry that is different from what people were doing before, at least Wordsworth thinks so. And as a manifesto, it, I think it's a really good one. It's worth just briefly, we should look at some, some more poems, but it's worth briefly looking at his, um, both what he praises and what he blames in gray, um, especially since a couple of us did, uh, three of us did that poem in the fall class, in the 18th century class. Uh, so this is on page. Which class did we do? Uh, which poem did we do? Um, the gray poem, um, the sonnet on the death of Richard West. Oh. Remember? The one he's in love with? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So Wordsworth is quoting that. This is, um, if you go to page 82 of the Norton. And just at the bottom of uh, page 82, it would, it would be a most easy task to prove that not only the language of a large portion of every good poem, even of the most elevated character, must necessarily, except with reference to the meter, in no respect differ from that of good prose, but likewise that some of the most interesting parts of the best poems will be found to be strictly the language of prose when prose is well written. So by prose here, what he means is speech that isn't um, poeticizing, that isn't sounding like it's poetry and using all sorts of poetic uh, forms of language and of, of archaism, of poetic license, and so on. Prose here means what he also calls the natural language of natural men. So, the truth of this assertion, he goes on, might be demonstrated by innumerable passages from almost all the poetical writings, even of Milton himself. So the idea would be that Milton is notoriously unlike Shakespeare, in that Milton, as you already know from reading the first two books of Paradise Lost, is writing something that it's very hard to confuse with ordinary spontaneous language because he's using Latinate forms of English. He's using Latin inversions. He's using all sorts of difficult words that have poetic and theological and philosophical resonances. And he's having his characters speak in an epic language. So if it's true of Milton, who it, then it's true of everyone else. And let me just remind you that Wordsworth I, I brought this in, but we never looked at it um, the first first week of class, where Wordsworth is comparing and contrasting what he's doing with Milton. This is something that we'll be talking about when we look at Wordsworth's prelude, which we're going to read through. So it's the long Wordsworth book that we're going to read. 
it's a whole lot easier than Paradise Lost. It may also be somewhat more boring than Paradise Lost, at least in parts. But at any rate, it's a whole lot easier than Paradise Lost. The What Wordsworth is doing here in the preface to Lyrical Ballads, you might compare with what Milton does in the note on the verse to Paradise Lost. That is, you'll remember that the note on the verse is how Paradise Lost is doing something revolutionary because it's not rhyming, because it is freeing itself from the ancient and troublesome bondage of rhyming. And it's an example set, the first in English, of poetry <coughs> that doesn't rhyme, that isn't part of a play. But the idea would be this is printed poetry, poetry to be read from a book, meant to be read in silence from a book, and yet it doesn't rhyme. And that this is liberty for Milton. This is an ancient liberty which has been recovered. And the idea of that liberty would be that we're getting away from the artificial constraints of poetry to some expression which comes from a deeper part of the poetic psyche of the of the human soul for Milton. And yeah. Wait, so the poetic like poeticizing language is not well, so Milton is certainly writing an extremely um, artful language, and the question whether it's artificial or not, everyone but Milton would say it is. That is, that the complaints about Milton are that he's not writing anything that looks like English, that what he's writing, except in the vocabulary and not even in all of that, what he's writing is in a diction and a style and a tone and in um, formulations and, um, and expressively in general something that is high poetic and epic rather than something that sounds like the way people would speak in English. And that argument against Milton, that's what later Eliot and um, Pound will have against Milton, is that he's just, that this is not, that what poetry should be in some sense is natural language concentrated. The famous line about Mallarmé, which is almost but not quite translation of Mallarmé, is the poet purifies the language of the tribe. That is, it is ordinary language purified. Um, so if you think of purification not as an addition to anything in language, but as taking away things that are unnecessary, straining and filtering out what is unnecessary and leaving a, a more intense version of what's there anyhow, a more concentrated version of what's there anyhow, that's what... Mallarmé, who certainly doesn't sound like anyone else in French and can hardly be said to be doing that, but that's the claim that Mallarmé is making and that Elliot and Pound are picking up, that what you should be getting is something that is like ordinary language, but ordinary language really intensified. And you can't say that of Milton. 
that's what Eliot and Pound are very explicit on. Pound just hated the line, which he quotes from Paradise Lost, die he or justice must, which he thought was whatever it is, it's ridiculous as an English sentence. That's God speaking of humanity, die he or justice must. And so what they're saying is that Milton is failing to express himself in something that would ordinarily be called English. What it, what it would be called, it's not clear, but it would, or it would be called um, epic, or it would be called poetese, epicese or poetese or something like that. Gerard Manley Hopkins said of Tennyson that when Tennyson was just producing poetry and didn't really have anything to say, he wrote in a language that Hopkins called Parnassian, which is he just wanted to sound poetic, so he wrote the way they write on Mount Parnassus, which is the haunt of the muses. But and he could just he could just spin it out endlessly. Hopkins thought, but it was it was just sounded like poetry. That's all it was supposed to do was sound like poetry. So the what Milton says is that poetry is language with true musical delight, and that that musical delight comes from the from variously drawing out the sense from verse to verse. And what that means then is that Milton is saying that there's a relationship between units of meaning, syntax and grammar on the one hand, and line endings on the other, and that it's the interplay of meaningful units and units of prosody or versification that the way they interplay with each other, that's what poetic delight stems from. So what Milton would be saying, what Milton thought he was saying, is that the words in a poem convey their meaning the way, to use Wordsworth's terminology, the words in prose convey their meaning. That the only thing that makes a poem a poem once you get rid of rhyme, which for Milton is just a jingle, it's like um, a slogan and is not what poetry really is. What makes a poem a poem is that we are keeping track of, in our minds, we're noticing that there is a, regul a regularity which is not conveying meaning but which is nevertheless a kind of heartbeat that's present within the meaningfulness of words that would be just as meaningful if, it, if the poem were written out as prose. And that the line endings, the enjambments, which for Milton are what really matter, come regularly and the prose weaves itself, or what, again, what Wordsworth would call prose, weaves itself around and across and over those line endings. So there's something that's meaningful, and then there's a structure that it weaves itself around, but the meaningful part would be meaningful just as is in prose. Yeah. Go on. I think that like, they're inseparable. Like the words and the rhythm, mm -hmm. I think it's all like one. Yeah. Like they work together to produce an effect. Yeah. So it's like the, even the rhythm says something. 
mm-hmm. I feel. Yeah. So it's not just like embellishment. Yeah, so so embellishment would be too more dismissive than what Milton means. What he thinks is rhyme is embellishment. And that and just ornament. And that that's something you don't really need. So I think he would agree with you that those two things go together. And that's why the word prose is a little bit problematic, because for us it's the noun for which prosaic is the adjective. But what Wordsworth is talking about here is is good prose. And what good prose would mean is that if you don't know that it's a poem, it would still be eloquent and powerful and stirring and moving. And the fact that it's a poem is good and probably, you're right, is probably a way of describing what makes it eloquent and powerful and stirring and moving. But it's not that you're hitting marks, which is what for Milton, rhyme would be. In other words, you have to say something plus every tenth syllable has to rhyme. And well, there was a poem that we read where it was making a mockery out of it, like uh, yeah, the Pope. The okay. yeah, yeah, where you hear the cool, wherever you read, the cooling western breeze. In the next line, it oh, yeah, whispers tree. through the trees. <laughs> yeah, um, if. Drowsy streams with pleasing murmurs creep. The reader's threatened, not in vain, with sleep. Sleep. That is, if if a line ends with the word creep, the next line is going to end with the word sleep. So you're threatened with the word sleep, but you're also threatened with the condition of falling asleep. The out reader's threatened out of boredom. Yeah. Okay. Oh God. Now I got to wait for sleep. Yeah. So that idea, which is just that you're. Um, pushing a button, let's say, every ten syllables, which is the button of rhyme, that you're doing every... You know, it, just imagine as, as you're dancing on a merry-go-round platform, and every time you pass the ring, you have to grab it, in addition to everything else you're doing. Milton is saying, why should you have to grab the ring? It's the dance that counts, and not grabbing the ring every time you go around. You don't have to clock in with a rhyme at the end of a line. And... So, but Wordsworth rhymes a lot, so that's not, it's not, and Milton in other work rhymes a lot, including in later work. So whether he's right about that or not, the claim that he's making, this is all that I want to say, the claim that Milton is making is that whatever it is that poetry is, it's not that you are, and I think here you would agree with him, Tafar, that there isn't a predetermined form that you somehow have to make your poem match up with, but rather, in which case, you're just saying, I'm going to write a poem, what should I write? Well, it should be a sonnet, so how should I rhyme it? It should be A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, E, C, D, E, and what shall I put in my sonnet? Well, sonnets are usually about love, so I'm going to have love in the sonnet. What should the rhymes be? You know, they're they're games where you're given rhymes. Um, They're called bourrimé. And they're games where, they're party games back in the days of those wild 18th century parties, um, where you'd be given a set of rhymes and people would have to write poems ending with those rhyme words. So that's the opposite of what Milton is doing. It's the idea is that not only is he not looking to get to the rhyme words, he's not looking for them to be rhyme words because he wants the words to say what they say. 
and to say what they say as powerfully as possible. And some of that power is going to, of course, be in rhetorical aspects of language. For example, whether you're using long sentences or short sentences, or whether you go from using a long sentence to one that becomes strikingly and arrestingly and even fragmentarily short, like this. And <laughs> the point is that people hear those things and they, they contribute to the meaning through a form which, which, is, which does contribute to meaning. Whereas rhyme does not contribute to meaning. Rhyme can never contribute no, to no, meaning. No, 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 that's what Milton is claiming. Of course yeah. rhyme can contribute no, to meaning. No, but I'm saying Milton is claiming that rhyme can never contribute No, he's to saying that the, um, it can, and in fact in a lot of modern verse it does, but the demand for rhyme um, is, ruins poetry, and that what's really important about poetry, even if it does contribute, what's important about it is not in the rhyme. And the more you are noticing the rhyme, the less you're noticing the rest of the poem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, in putting it in other words, if I understand it correctly, he's like calling for a sort of spontaneity in yeah. writing that's like, uh, like originality in that you're not, yeah, I feel like you're not sitting down to calculate. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna do this. Yeah. Because that, I feel like it's, it's almost like the Pharisees in the Bible, mm -hmm. where they make so much fuss about the laws yeah. and not about what the laws were saying. Yeah. Like doing. So it's like people become fanatics. Like, right. Oh, Ryan, yeah. So cool. And then, yeah, so then they lose the spontaneity and they always have to prepare. Yeah. 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 So that's right. And that's, that's why Milton, again, says that people are um, say things otherwise and um, usually worse than they otherwise would have said them. And it's clear that in Paradise Lost, as he himself describes how he composes it, that he's thinking metrically, which is something that you do do. People do think metrically. If you find yourself studying for a Milton or a Shakespeare exam by reading... Milton 12 hours a day for four days before the exam, or Shakespeare 12 hours a day for four days before the exam, you will dream an iambic pentameter, as I can aver of myself as an undergraduate. No, but you'll find yourself doing it. The more iambic pentameter you read, the more you will, you will find your thoughts conforming to, or find your mental ease conforming to iambic pentameter. Yeah, Jenny said that you sleep different if, when you start reading in sapphics. Yeah. Or yeah, 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 yeah. And that's because language does have rhythm and meter, and poetry is, is a tightening up of something that's natural to language. And rhyme is not that. Rhyme is an extra thing added on to what is natural to all language, which is rhythm and meter. So Milton claims, I'm just saying this because Milton is claiming that he's returning to the meaningfulness of language rather than artificially added poetic ornaments. And then Wordsworth is making a very similar claim when in the preface to Lyrical Ballads he's saying that good poetry should be like good prose, 
and the only difference being that it is um, uh, no it uh, except with reference to the meter, it in no, in no respect will differ from that of good prose, and um, likewise that some of the most interesting parts of the best poems will be found to be strictly the language of prose when prose is well written. And it really matters here that prose is well written, which is to say, not prosaic, but powerful prose. And some of you may know that there's a chapter in Moby Dick, which is an iambic pentameter, and it's set out as prose, but you could set it out as iambic, as, as iambic pentameter in the same way that Paradise Lost is set out as iambic pentameter. And people don't, reading it, they don't say, Oh my God! Why there's something wrong with the lineation here? This clearly, these clearly should be line endings. The point is, you may not know it. You probably won't know it when you're reading Moby Dick. You'll just be reading something that is rhetorically very intense, and it will make sense as prose, but it also makes sense as poetry. And what Wordsworth is saying, and maybe what Milton is saying, is that that could be a test is if you offer it to people as prose, will they think this doesn't work as prose, it has to be poetry. And the, um, the idea here is that if it's good, then it should work without your knowing that it's a poem. And, you know, it's like if you go to a Shakespeare play if the play is well acted, you will frequently not know whether what someone is saying is printed as prose or as poetry in the script of the play. That is, you know, take what a piece of work is man, how infinite in faculties, that, ham that famous Hamlet speech. Most people who don't know it don't know that it's prose, that Hamlet is speaking prose there. Oh, not poetry? Not poetry. Oh. And the point is it's intense prose. And it's also the poetry sounds like speech when people are having an argument or describing um, themselves as, as in trouble in some sense. In Shakespeare, people don't, listening to the play, don't say, oh, yes, I'm hearing that as a poem. How very nice. What they're hearing is the content of the speech, and that's what really matters. So the... Um, so Wordsworth here is saying something similar to what Milton is saying, even as in a lot of ways he's turning against or thinks he's turning against Milton. So the main thing to see here is that Wordsworth really takes Milton as his rival, and both as his model and his rival. And what Wordsworth is doing is thinking that Milton's mistake is to think that poetry should serve religious intentions, thinks that the way to define what it means to be a human being, which, which Wordsworth utterly admires Milton for doing, is to think of a human being as, in religious terms, as owing something to God, as experiencing the fall, as being a sinner, and, and so on, that Milton's poems are mostly about human 
um, experiences of God or human our, our relationship to God and to sin and to sin defined as sin because it goes against God. So that's a not unfair account of word that's Wordsworth not giving an, not giving a very unfair account of Milton. So what he says in Home at Grasmere, for example, which is, as I say, what I brought in the first day of class, but which I think is not in, in the Norton anthology, is that um, he is... Um, actually, can, can I use your... Yeah, sure. Do you think it is in here? I don't... Uh, is no, 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 sorry, I was talking to Ryan. Uh, oh, I, was, I thought you were going to look up and then for some reason I was just going to yeah, yeah, look it up, because maybe it I is. It. But I'm pretty sure it's not. Yeah. Is what in here? This, um, the poem, Home at Grasmere. Is it in the Norton? Which I don't think it is. However, it will be here. And complete works. Oh, it's it's totally laid out as prose. It's it's an infinitely long <laughs> single line that's not going to work. See, look. Oh yeah, and then it comes up the page. Yeah, but it's going to go forever because it's <laughs> hundreds wow. of lines long. So that won't work. See, maybe there is a distinction that matters between poetry and prose. <laughs> um, Bartleby's usually good though. Okay, let's try this now. Maybe if I go to cash. Oh, bummer. All right, let's just. No, that didn't work. PDF. Okay, this might work. Did you find it, Olivia? No, I'm not All right, hang on. Find. Oh wait, how did you find Control F? Yeah. Never mind, I'll bring it in on Wednesday. Um, okay. Unless someone brought in all the readings, all the Xeroxes, all the handouts. No. Uh, no, it's okay. Were those posted on? No, 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 I brought them in oh, like for say class. Oh, you weren't even okay. here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, don't worry about it. Wait, is it this? Yes, thank you. <laughs> all right. So, do that. <laughs> all right. Um, I'm really good at Google. <laughs> <laughs> Google foo. It would be a most easy task. What were you looking up? What? It would be a most easy task. Oh, that was the first line of the passage you were reading from. Oh, okay. All oh, right. In, in, uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, okay. So this is. Um, 
Wordsworth is describing the poem he's going to try to read. This is, in fact, a not very good... Right. This is, in fact, a not very good poem, which Wordsworth, was the main, Wordsworth thought was the main um, task of his life, but he didn't um, end up writing... He only wrote part of it, and it wasn't that good. Um... So then he says, um, I'll just read this to you. On man, on nature, and on human life, musing in solitude, I oft perceive fair trains of imagery before me rise, accompanied by feelings of delight, pure, or with no unpleasing sadness mixed. So he says, I think about these things. I muse on man, on nature, and on human life. And then imagery rises before me, accompanied by feelings of delight, pure, or with no unpleasing sadness mixed. I wonder if he did it this way. Hang on a second. There's, it is possibly in here in a different form, which would be okay. Um, or, or, or no. So weird. Put in the whole prelude, but not that. Okay. Um, or with no unpleasing sadness mixed. And I am conscious of affecting thoughts and dear remembrances whose presence soothes or elevates the mind intent to weigh the good and evil of our mortal state. To these emotions, whensoe'er they come, whether from breath of outward circumstance or from the soul, an impulse to herself, I would give utterance in numerous verse. So he thinks about, he says, I think about these things, man, nature, life, imagery arises before me, before my mind, memories and thoughts arise in me, and they soothe or elevate my mind, and having these emotions, I want to give them utterance, and um, my soul wants to give them utterance, and it will do so in numerous verse, numerous there, Means ver means metrical, means um, following following um, poetic numbers. He goes on of truth, of grandeur, beauty, love, and hope, and melancholy fear subdued by faith, of blessed consolations in distress, of moral strength and intellectual power, or joy in widest commonality spread, of the individual mind that keeps her own inviolate retirements retirement subject there to conscience only, and the law supreme of that intelligence which governs all, I sing. So he's going to sing of all those things in his verse. Truth, grandeur, beauty, love, hope, fear subdued by faith, consolation in distress, moral strength, intellectual power, joy, common spread to everyone. The individual mind retired in itself. So both joy spread everywhere and the mind within itself meditating. Um, all of these things I sing, and then he writes, fit audience let me find, though few. And those words are in quotation marks, fit audience let me find, though few. Does anyone know why they're in quotation marks? I can look it up. You don't have to, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> anyone know? So that is um, from the invocation in Milton to, um, to Book Nine of Paradise Lost. Let me fit audience, let me find, though few. 
And so Milton is saying, this poem, I'm looking for um, a fit audience, even if most people don't get it, I'm looking for it. So Wordsworth quotes Milton there. And then he says, so prayed, more gaining than he asked the bard. So having quoted Milton, he says, that's what Milton prayed, gaining more than he asked. He got more than a, few, than a little audience. He got a great audience. So prayed, more gaining than he asked the bard in holiest mood. Urania, he then addresses the muse, I shall need thy guidance, because Milton calls his muse Urania. He says, I shall need thy guidance or a greater muse. So I need the guidance of a muse greater than Milton's. I shall need thy guidance or a greater muse if such descend to earth or dwell in highest heaven. For I must tread on shadowy ground, must sink deep and aloft ascending, breathe in worlds to which the heaven of heavens is but a veil. So he says, I am going to go lower and tread on, um, d- tread on shadowy ground and sink deep and ascend into worlds into which the heaven of heavens is but a veil. That is, Milton's heaven is only a veil covering where I, Wordsworth, am going. So here is Wordsworth in, who, this is the Wordsworthian version of Blake's Milton. So what happens, one way to give a plot summary of Milton is to say that Milton does this great, great poem, Paradise Lost, which God approves of, so Milton goes to heaven, or which Urizen approves of, so Milton goes to heaven. Um, But after 100 years, he realizes that, no, this heaven is wrong, and that the heaven being run by Urizen and by the fearful specters they're not going to real human truth and real human transcendence. So this is all wrong, which is why Milton then gives up heaven and descends to earth and has to wrestle with Satan and has to inspire Blake, but also has to learn the truth, which is that Paradise Lost was the right impulse but a failure to get to the full truth of the human soul. So that is one way of talking about why Blake has to continue Milton's story. Why Milton's story, the, the mythology about Milton that Blake then says is not enough, is Milton wrote Paradise Lost and it was so great that he went to heaven where he was regarded as, um, rightly regarded as a great poet. So that would be, that would be the story that Blake is then saying that story is wrong. It's true, but it's wrong because Milton in heaven is being rewarded for not going far enough, for not challenging God enough, for not challenging the forces of oppression enough. He does challenge them, but not enough. So the, so the heretical version, it's as though Blake is saying, the version that the Church of Milton says you should accept is Milton wrote Paradise Lost, it was great, it was true, he went to heaven, he was rewarded forever. And Blake is saying, no, that's wrong. Here is the right story, even if it's heretical. He went to heaven, he was rewarded, and then he realized that after 100 years that this wasn't right, that something was missing, that you had to go farther. 
So Wordsworth's version of going farther is to say, I'm going to, to go farther. So I must tread, I shall need thy guidance, you who guided Milton, or a greater muse, because Milton's muse wasn't great enough. If such descend to earth or dwell in highest heaven, for I must tread on shadowy ground, must sink deep, and aloft ascending breathe in worlds to which the heaven of heavens is but a veil, all strength, all terror, single or in bands, that ever was put forth in personal form. Jehovah, with his thunder and the choir of shouting angels and the imperial thrones, all of those things, he says, I pass them unalarmed. So all the things Milton wrote about, all the things that Milton said um, in the invocations, that he has dared to go into the heaven of heavens, an earthly, an earthly guest, um, that into, into the heaven of heavens I have presumed an earthly guest. I've done all that, says Milton, and now I want to return to my native element, back to earth. This is all in Paradise Lost. Wordsworth is saying all that stuff that Milton was scared about going so deeply into and nevertheless had the courage to do, I, Wordsworth, I pass them unalarmed. All strength, all terror, singular in bands that ever was put forth in personal form. Jehovah, that is the God of paradise lost, with his thunder and the choir of shouting angels and the imperial thrones, I pass them unalarmed. Not chaos, not the darkest pit of lowest Erebus, that is hell nor aught of blinder vacancy scooped out by help of dreams. So even the worst thing that Milton describes, the blinder vacancy scooped out by help of dreams, not any of these things can breed such fear and awe as fall upon us often when we look into our minds, into the mind of man, my haunt, and the main region of my song. So he goes on from there, but that's, thank you, that's the crucial um, part that he's saying what Milton did was right, except that he turned it into a mythology. And he had a personal god and a personal um, devil and a personal son of God and all these angels, and he turned it into a mythology in which figures are battling with each other. And all of those things are as nothing. They're toys. They're, they're kid stuff compared to what I, to the depths and the heights that I am going, which is the human mind. The human mind is a far, far greater, more immense, more intense world than the world of Paradise Lost. So Milton says, you know, I'm writing a poem about the real heaven and the real hell. And that far outdoes what Homer did, which was to write a poem about um, a more trivial heaven and no hell and the human beings who are involved. And Wordsworth is saying, Milton was writing about this trivial mythological heaven and hell, but I'm writing about what really matters, which is the human mind. So Wordsworth is following Milton in the way he rebels against Milton. That is, Milton says, I'm going to write a new kind of poetic language, which is going to be serious and not just a poetic performance. And Milton 
um, is saying, I'm going to write about what really matters, which is the human soul in its relationship to its past and its future and other human beings. And Wordsworth then says, unlike Milton, I'm going to write a poetic language, which is real language and not just um, not, not just the production of something that looks like poetry. And I'm going to write about the human soul and not just tell stories the way Milton told them. So he does to Milton what Milton has done to those who preceded <coughs> him. And so you should therefore, you could therefore think of the, of the note on the verse in Paradise Lost and this moment, we're about to get to Gray, um, in the preface to Lyrical Ballads, that the language, the only thing that makes poetry poetry is meter, and it should otherwise be like natural language. That is, like the language of real people speaking a real language and caring about what they say, not for its form, but for its the intensity of description that it gives of an intense state of mind. Wordsworth's famous line will be emotion recollected in tranquility. That is, that its poetry should be thinking about, come, should come out of thinking about real emotion at a time when you have time to think about it and you can bring it back to yourself, but you can also describe it. But so then he goes on, the truth of this assertion, that poetry is like good prose, might be demonstrated by innumerable passages from almost all the poetical writings, even of Milton himself. So he's saying there are innumerable passages in poetry that prove that poetry is like good prose, even in Milton himself. I have not space for much quotation. But to illustrate the subject in a general manner, I will here reduce a short composition of Gray, who is at the head of those who, by their reasonings, have attempted to widen the space of separation betwixt prose and metrical composition. So what he's saying, which is true, is that Gray, who, who lived, um, who was about 40 years older, 30 years older than Wordsworth, was, he was an incredibly scholarly um, uh, figure. He was, he was a, a don. He knew all sorts of things about ancient poetry, and it was his belief that poetry was a special kind of language and that it was really important to keep the idea of poetry as a kind of sacred language, a sacred project, that, that it was really important to think of poetry that way. Gray was immensely learned and he knew an enormous amount. So here is someone who, Wurzer says, even in gray, you will see that the best parts of his poetry are like prose. So he was at the head of those who, by their reasonings, have attempted to widen the space of separation between prose and metrical composition, and was more than any, any other man curiously elaborate in the structure of his own poetic diction. So to say that he's curiously elaborate in the structure of his own poetic diction is to say that, the, that, that he's not writing the language of prose. He's twisting poetic language and making it as unprose-like as possible. 
and the footnote here quotes a letter of Gray's to West, the person to, to Richard West, to whom he's writing this poem, or whom he's memorializing in this poem, that the language of, of the age is never the language of poetry. So he has an extreme elitist view of poetry, Gray does, and that elitist view is that poetry is a, is a relief from, an escape from, a hastening to, a, an escape from the vulgar language of the streets of what people speak every day, and a hastening to some higher plane. That poetry is, so it's a, it's a very, very elitist mode. Who and, believes that? Great. Okay. And, um, or he says he believes it. That's his theory. Whether it's true in practice or not, you know, if you think about the um, elegy in a country churchyard, it's hard to think that Gray, on some deep level, believes it. Those of you who know it quickly, what's the elegy in a country churchyard? It's, oh, yeah. No, you go for it. I'm not sure if I'm remembering. It's like, um, basically, he goes to this churchyard, he, go, he goes to this graveyard with all the dead bodies, all of, like, like the country people who nobody in the city cares about. A Cromwell guiltless yeah. of his country's blood. Remember? Yeah, and and beneath those um, beneath those gravestones are like some grave Milton and some. So a mute inglorious Milton. Yeah, a mute inglorious Milton, and like all these people that could have been, like, these really great people, they just didn't have the opportunities. Yeah, so these are very obscure people who live and die in obscurity. Um, they may be, you know, a village Hampton that is a tyrant in the village, a mute and glorious Milton. Um, it's the it's a poem that begins with "Leaves the world to darkness and to me." Do you remember Ariel? I have it below. Okay. It's the is that wait actually is this the one with the the, the farmer home, homeward plowing? Um, no, that's a, no, that's a, no. Yes, that's a different. No, that's a different. Yeah. Um, actually, no, it might be. There's the something. Shepherd leading the yeah. homeward. Yeah, yeah. Sleeping. Yeah. World yeah. To yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, 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 that's how it begins. Sorry, there's a similar moment in the um, Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eaton College. I think there's a similar moment there. At any rate, so the elegy in a country churchyard is all these people who were obscure and who did nothing and who were illiterate were nevertheless um, in their lives probably. Um, it was pure chance that they weren't great figures. It's because of where they were born, but their characters and their being were the equivalent of great figures. And, and even the rude um, um, poetry that they write is worth reading because it comes out of something real. So Gray is, in, in, for Wordsworth, he's the villain. He's the anti-romantic. Um, but for the history of romanticism, he's definitely a proto-romantic. At any rate. Sorry, for Blake, he's the... For Wordsworth. For Wordsworth, he's the greatest of the ones. Yeah, as he says here, that, that Gray was the head of those who tried to widen the space of separation between poetry and me and between prose uh, and media. Oh, okay. So, so Wordsworth wants to get rid of that separation. Gray, is supposed, Gray supposedly was the one who wanted to make that separation as great as possible. So he then quotes... Gray's sonnet on the death of West. In vain to me the smiling mornings shine, and reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire. The birds in vain their amorous descant join, that a perfect rhyme at the time, 
on cheerful or cheerful fields resume their green attire. These ears, alas, for other notes repine. A different object do these eyes require. My lonely anguish melts no heart but mine, and in my breast the imperfect joys expire. Yet morning smiles the busy race to cheer, and newborn pleasure brings to happier men. The fields to all their wanted tribute bear, to warm their little loves the birds complain. I fruitless mourn to him that cannot hear, and weep the more because I weep in vain. So he quotes that sonnet, and he italicizes the following words, or the following lines. A different object do these eyes require. My lonely anguish melts no heart but mine, and in my breast the imperfect joys expire. I fruitless mourn to him that cannot hear, and weep the more because I weep in vain. And so those are the italicized lines. And what he says is, it will easily be perceived that the only part of this sonnet which is of any value is the lines printed in italics. Well, you know, if Wordsworth thinks you've written five out of 14 good lines in a sonnet, I feel like you're way ahead of the game. Um, But the only part of the sonnet which is of any value is the lines printed in italics. It is equally obvious that except in the rhyme and in the use of a single word fruitless for fruitlessly, which is so far a defect, the language of these lines does in no respect differ from that of prose. So one way to think about this is to think Wordsworth could have written a different object do these eyes require, my lonely anguish melts no heart but mine or I fruitless mourn to him that cannot bear and weep the more because I weep in vain, that those are just great lines even by modern standards. Whereas, in vain to me the smiling mornings shine and reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire, well, no, that sounds like old poetry. Reddening Phoebus means the rising sun. Um, and that just sounds like you're using poetic language and poetic diction, and it doesn't sound like anyone would say if they were really feeling mournful. It's He searched out poetic imagery there because this is standard poetic imagery, and that's what Wordsworth doesn't like. What he does want is the something that sounds like what anyone could say, and you could say what anyone might want to quote if they're in mourning. That is, if you're in mourning, someone you love has died, you're not going to go around and think to yourself, in vain to me, the smiling mornings shine and reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire, but you might say, my lonely anguish melts no heart but mine. That is, that those lines, Wordsworth is picking out lines that he thinks are great, and they are great, and he's telling you why he thinks they're great, which is they sound like someone, something someone might say, not something studiously searched for in order to sound poetic, but something that someone might actually say. And um, just read the addition, the... Um, the bolded edition uh, a little bit below. By the foregoing quotation, I have shown that the language of prose may yet be well adapted to poetry. 
and I have previously asserted that a large portion of the language of every good poem can in no respect differ from that of good prose. I will go further. I do not doubt that it may be safely affirmed that there neither is nor can be any essential difference between the language of prose and metrical composition. So where that gets it, what that gets it, is to the idea that poetry is not the special province of the learned. Poetry is not something one political, one really perennial political objection to poetry is that poetry is a moral or an apparently morally good reward for elitism, which is to say that poetry is difficult, it's achieved, it's hard, the hardness is worth it because of the power of, the, of poetry once you learn to respond to that power, whether as a reader or as a writer, and that therefore it feels virtuous to take a class like this, to learn poetry, to study poetry. It feels like you're doing something difficult and that there's a payback, but that the, pay, the, fa the very fact that you feel there's a payback to the study of poetry is a sign that you are a virtuous person, that loving poetry, lots of people think that if they love Milton, if they love really hard art, let's not just say poetry, but poetry here is standing in for difficult art, that the fact that they work against that difficulty, work through that difficulty, that they get to a point where they can be thrilled by Milton or thrilled by Homer or thrilled by Virgil, that, that it took a lot of work to get there, but that when you get there, you do feel that way and you do also feel the, the labor and the effort that it took, that that makes you virtuous the way running a five-minute mile might make you virtuous. And because you've done work, you've given up um, easy pleasures for, to do it. You've given up um, some kind of um, just, just uh, immediate gratification in order to do the work of loving poetry. Okay, that may or may not be true. The political problem with that is that it then allows an elite to feel good about itself and to feel good about its own elitism. That is that most people um, don't know shit about poetry. They just want to listen to um, talk radio about sports and about politics, and they watch Fox News or whatever. They watch, they watch CNN, and um, they don't... Um, they haven't done the work that it takes to really, really get deeply into the human soul. And because they haven't done that work, they haven't gone deeply into the human soul. And because they haven't gone deeply into the human soul, they haven't made their own souls deep. And because they haven't made their own souls deep, they're shallow. So that is a kind of natural set of, of dominoes that can fall. And it is a way that the elite can 
feel contemptuous of everyone else and feel that what it really means, to quote Barbara Bush, who um, said that people shouldn't be thinking so much about the Iraq war, um, she said, why would you, um, why would you, what was the verb she used? Why do this to your beautiful mind? That is, why worry about the war and, and, and um, talk about all the violence that's going on and so on to your beautiful mind? So the idea is that there are a few people with beautiful minds who have cultivated this beauty in their minds and who therefore rightly feel that they are more important than anyone else. And that's the political danger um, that lots of people then use as a cudgel against all poetry or against all high art. That high art is naturally elitist and elitist art is naturally oppressive. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I've like, been thinking about Wordsworth and Notorious B.H. Mm-hmm. A, a lot. As one does. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I think it's, like, yeah, it's an interesting discussion that we started about like the politics of poetry. Because well, I would argue that well, someone who didn't have like as much like classical or traditional schooling like Notorious B.A.G. still accessed what I guess like would call his poetic genius. Yeah, exactly. Like beautifully. Yeah. And and it's like without the avenue of like a traditional poetry like right. thought. And then he started his own yeah. almost like yeah. art form. Yes. And, well, it's the same with, I guess, Nina Simone as well. With who? Nina Simone. Uh-huh. She wasn't yeah. allowed to be a classical pianist. Yeah. And then she starts, like, yeah. her own, her own thing. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I feel it's like there is no monopoly. Yes. On poetic genius. Right, exactly. And that yeah. is then Wordsworth's point. And also Blake. So if you think, you know, Wordsworth and Blake are about as different as you can imagine. No one would confuse, except possibly some of the poems and songs of innocence and experience, possibly with some of the songs in lyrical ballads. Um, But in general, no one would ever confuse Blake really with anyone else, and certainly not with Wordsworth. Um, If you're reading something like Milton or the Book of Fell or the Book of Urizen or or America, you have these immense lines with strange mythological figures who Blake has invented out of his own mind, um, and you have no idea what's going on. And then in Wordsworth, you have these very simple poems, often, um, about the huntsman Simon Lee or about Goody Blake and Harry Gill, and they just, they're nothing like Blake. But both Wordsworth and Blake are saying that poetry doesn't come out of learning, it comes out of the mind. It comes out of, out of you're absolutely right to call it the poetic genius. And so what Wordsworth here is doing is making Gray a little bit of a um, straw man to, um, um, to attack the kind of, to attack Gray for saying that poetry should not be in everyday language, that what really matters is, is that poetry should never be 
in everyday language, but should be in an elevated and higher kind of language. And Wordsworth is saying that's elitist. At the time that Wordsworth is saying this, he's very left-wing. Um, he later became a right-wing maniac, but um, early on in his career he was left-wing. Um, his friend Coleridge was even more left-wing. Coleridge and Southey were planning to come to Pennsylvania and start a hippie commune. Um, it would have been like the first hippie commune in the United States. Coleridge? Coleridge, yeah. They were going to start, they had something they called a pantisocracy, which was going to be um, that uh, ra- an experiment in radical democracy. And they were, they, were, they were radicals in the 1790s. They um, They would have. They didn't. They, they might. Some Amer, Native Americans did, but not in England. Um, Sweet so, Yeah. Or, or well, Coleridge took tons of opium. He was a complete opium addict. It's, it was the big bane of his life was his addiction to opium. Did he die because of that? No, but um, he. He had to leave home. He tried to. Uh, uh, he went to Malta and um, tried to um, break his opium habit there. Then he went back to England and he was poor because he'd messed up. And so he he wrote a book called a great book called Biographia Literaria, in which he has a lot. He says a lot about how he managed to kick opium and how good that was. But um, he was having so much trouble writing that chapter that he started eating more and more opium. Opium then was swallowed. Was, was, um, it, it was mixed with alcohol and swallowed. The name of the drug was laudanum, which is a mixture of opium and alcohol. Oh, so, and, so, so, so having a lot of laudanum helped him write about how he no longer was dependent on laudanum. Um, and um, it totally messed him up. And then their friend Thomas de Quincey, who's now most famous for a book called Confessions of an English Opium Eater, um, also describes both his, his um, experiences with opium, which were pretty grim in the end, as well as Coleridge's. And um, he, was, he has a great book called Recollections of the Lakes and the Lake Poets, where he describes uh, living... Um, in the neighborhood and staying with Coleridge and Wordsworth and and Southey, so wow. <laughs> the um, but it wasn't the drug part that was attracting them to the banks of the Susquehanna. It was the idea of a radical, um, a radical new way of living, um, a radical democracy, and so they were Coleridge and Wordsworth in their youth, like Blake, always were left wing poets and left wing figures um, and um, Byron and Shelley were also left wing figures Shelley may be the most left wing of all um, Keats was uh, not, a, not particularly political but all the romantics at least in their great periods were, le- were left wing figures so is it like the ones who turn right is it like they are sucking up to the man in the end of their lives certainly true of Wordsworth yeah um, probably a little bit less true of Coleridge, who who's became more conventionally religious. That is, he was always a believer, but his religion became more conventional. But Wordsworth became more and more of a suck-up, yeah. So he believed it, though. I mean, he was a, he was a believing suck-up. He wasn't Sean Hannity. He was someone who watched Sean Hannity. Yeah. 
It's like the president of the Brandeis Climate Justice Club getting a job with Placento or whatever it's called. With? Like the GMO company. Oh, Monsanto? Yeah. Is that true? No. Oh, that's what it would be like. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of what happened, just to give you a little bit more background on this, is that Napoleon was the figure that everyone was thinking about. There's a French Revolution, and then there was Napoleon. And Wordsworth lived through the French Revolution, which went was a revolution that went bad in the way that Blake is describing. And um, then everyone saw Napoleon, who who started off as a liberator. That is, Napoleon was going to be the the great spirit of the revolution um, or the great reviver and exporter of revolution to all of Europe and then Napoleon just became this this absolutist empire he became um, uh, he became everything that everyone hated after being everyone's hope for a while and this you know Napoleon was the dominant figure in Western Europe or in all of Europe um, probably the most single most dominant figure in the whole 19th century um, and it was what, what people saw in the story of Napoleon was the disastrous um, failure of radical politics to sustain itself and what they saw in Napoleon instead was radical politics turning into um, another tyranny and because England was the country that most resisted Napoleonic um, uh, the export and the, the, the um, diffusion of Napoleonic um, fervor in the beginning of the 1800s lots of people who at first were absolutely taken by Napoleon um, then became conservative supporters of um, English of, of, of English tradition as um, ultimately the thing that prevented tyranny. So Wordsworth was right-wing but not pro-tyranny in any way. He wasn't, you know, Kellyanne Conway the other day talking about the New Zealand shooter denied, she's, just an amazing thing she said, she said it twice, she said... He's not a conservative. He's not a Nazi. And she said it twice, as though those things were synonymous. And it was really important, um, you know, that the spin that the right has put on the shooting is that he's an eco-terrorist. And um, therefore... What does eco-terrorist mean? That he um, thinks human beings should be killed so that it's part of radical ecology. Humans are destroying the world. The sooner humans die out, the better. Oh. It's the Thanos. Oh. Sorry? The Thanos yeah. mentality. Yeah. Okay, I get what that is. And that's and he's not that. And no, he's a, right. he's a <laughs> racist yeah. fucking Wait, pig. No, I get that. And that's but she's saying that that's... Yeah, they, so, yeah so that, so that um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is trying to say and... Um, it was the line from the White House is this is that this guy's basically um, AOC, no difference. <laughs> really? I don't know how they sleep at night. Yeah. Is that really what they oh my god. <laughs> More or less, yeah. Wow. So at any rate, 
the, that's not Wordsworth. Wordsworth was a conservative, but not a Nazi. So if Kellyanne Conway thinks they're the same, um, which she doesn't really, it's just a stupid thing for her to say, but um, being conservative means preserving... Uh, it's, it, the word isn't used that way in the U.S. anymore, but it was until Reagan. It means not going too fast, not thinking that you can socially engineer... Um, things and they'll automatically be better because we've seen social engineering in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany and in um, Maoist China and whenever you socially engineer things you get civil war and violence and suppression and we've known that since Napoleon or we've known that since the French Revolution that would be what Burke had to say about the French Revolution so Wordsworth becomes a kind of conservative of that sort um, and um, against radical, against the power that people seize and justify seizing um, because of their radical plans for social engineering. That kind of goes along with romanticism, actually. Well, with some of it. Yeah. Yeah. But at any rate, that's not the Wordsworth <laughs> we're interested in. Right. That's when yeah. Wordsworth started writing crappy poems, um, including his sonnets on the punishment of death. <laughs> which were a series of sonnets about why the death penalty was a good thing. And um, sonnets against the secret ballot, which was why the secret ballot was a bad thing, because then people could vote for whoever they wanted. We can't have that. What secret ballot? Oh, that's when... People started... Yeah, in the 19th century, you could vote without saying who you were voting for. And until then, you had to say who you were voting for? It wasn't a secret. Yeah, you just voted in public. Wow. It's like raising your hand in a class. So the secret ballot was a big innovation and contested, and Wordsworth was against it. Wow. So, but this is not the Wordsworth that we love. This is right. not why we read Wordsworth. God is what, dead then. Sorry? He was dead then. Well, that's what Shelley basically said, that Shelley, who wrote a, um, a sonnet to Wordsworth, basically said Wordsworth... I mean, there are a lot of poems by great poets about what the hell happened to Wordsworth. Um, and one of them is called The Lost Rider by Robert Browning, um, which is um, Milton was for us, Byron was with us. Oh, here, let me, sorry. But I'm partly saying this because I'm saying that what we're reading now is the other Wordsworth, Wordsworth before Wordsworth turned into such a figure. So, um, let's do this. Okay. Um, Cactuses. Cacti. Cacti. I actually don't know what the cacti is. Is it though? Yes. Is it what? Is it cacti or cactuses? But it's cactuses. It is. Yes. It's like octopi and octopuses. Well, no. It's octopedes. Really? Yes. I think we're in that assignment that octopuses. I was like, it just looks wrong. Like it just. But it's not octopi is the important thing. Um, it is. Did you see that a long time ago they had a vote on what the plural of 
Prius or Beat, it's pretty high. Because the ability on the headset. Oh, pretty high. With three eyes? No. How we know it with your two eyes? Who just got it? I don't know. Wait, Prius as in the car? Yeah. The company said it was the photo with Prius. It's going to the side. And a bunch of funny people went on the road. All right, so this is, just to get this out of your system, this is Robert Browning on Wordsworth. So Browning is um, 40 years younger than Wordsworth. Um, just for a handful of silver he left us, just for a ribbon to stick in his coat, wow. found the one gift of which fortune bereft us, lost all the others she lets us devote. So he found bribery and he lost all the other gifts that he used to have. They, with the gold to give, dulled him out silver. So much was theirs who so little allowed. How all our copper had gone for his service. Rags, were they purple, his heart had been proud. So we gave him all our copy, but the copper um, we contributed to him with the pennies that we had, but they gave him silver, and he liked rags if they were purple, because purple is the expensive color, the expensive dye. We that had loved him so, followed him, honored him, lived in his mild and magnificent eye, learned his great language, caught his clear accents, made him our pattern to live and to die. Shakespeare was of us, Milton was for us, Burns, Shelley were with us, they watch from their graves. He alone breaks from the van and the free men, he alone sinks to the rear and the slaves. So that's how disappointed people were in what had become of Wordsworth that he'd started out as this um, really radical, powerful, Blakean figure who then turned into um, someone who, as far as Browning and Shelley were concerned, um, had become a slave himself. In fact, that's what Mary Shelley wrote. So the, the bit from Home at Grasmere that I read you is from this poem that I was telling you, The Excursion, which is um, part one of Wordsworth's otherwise incomplete um, epic poem, The Recluse. And when the excursion was published in 1819, I believe it was. It might have been 1817, but I think it was 1819. Um, everyone was excited. Wordsworth, long, long poem by Wordsworth. How fantastic. And um, the Shelleys and Byron were in Venice. And Percy and Mary Shelley um, hired a gondola for the day and just floated in the gondola and read through the excursion aloud to each other. And Mary Shelley describes this in her diary and says, um, we spent the day drifting in a gondola. Percy and I spent the day drifting in a gondola reading the excursion. Um, it was terrible. And then her amazing line, he has become a slave. So that's what they thought of the excursion that they were shocked to see in this poem, which is not a political poem that they decided from that poem that Wordsworth had become a slave. So what Matthew Arnold, who's not a person one should like very much, 
Um, he himself said that Wordsworth, by the time that he was 35, was three-quarters iced over. And it's true. Wordsworth, the first half of his life, he was a great, great poet. The second half of his life, which is when he wrote most of his poems, there may be four or five good poems that he wrote the second half of his life. And the first half of his life, there are hundreds. And um, Napoleon was part of this. It's, it's like when your cranky uncle talks about how when he was your age, he too was a left-winger, but now Trump is right. Um, that's what Wordsworth, you don't have an uncle like that, Meg? My uncle's, well, the only uncle's politics I know is very liberal. My aunt is crazy. Okay. She's Alright, your, your, your cranky avuncular figure, your cranky always, as we might say in Latin, um, is um, thinks that it's sweet how leftist you are given you know, because you're young, of course. And all that patronization, that's what happened to Wordsworth. And, um, but he used to be, and in the poems that we're reading, he's a great figure. What Yeats said about him is that everyone laments that Shelley died at 29, but everyone also laments that Wordsworth didn't. Um, <laughs> because if he had... Um, <laughs> then he would have been a purely great poet. Um, and um, Shelley himself, in a poem which is in a lot of ways a critique of Wordsworth, um, quotes a line of Wordsworth's, um, the good die first and those whose hearts are dry as summer's dust burn to the socket. So Shelley's quoting Wordsworth, and then Shelley says, um, it may be that in terms of lived experience, um, he who dies at 30 has lived a longer life than someone who lives to, um, three, to, to four score years. And so Shelley died a month before his 30th birthday. He wrote this about five years earlier than that. But Shelley does die a month before his 30th birthday, whereas Wordsworth, in fact, lived to 80. Um, so amazingly prophetic. Um, moment on Shelley's part. Sorry, is Percy Shelley married to Mary Shelley? Not anymore because they're dead. But, but they were? They were, yes. Oh. What? Yeah, yeah, what she says. Oh, you're so right! <laughs> yes. So, it's basically They are too. We're a threesome was almost the shit. Never mind. <laughs> that would be almost the Shelleyan version of this. Uh, the Shelleys practiced free love, as did um, the Byrons and other friends. Wait, what is free love? So they were, yes. What is what does that mean? They had an open relationship. Yeah. So they would have, they were married, but they would probably have sexual intercourse with other people. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Together and alone. Um, I don't think there's any evidence of actual threesomes. Um, whereas with Byron there was but, <laughs> but Shelley and Byron were best friends I mean they were literally best friends um, when Shelley died Byron had an amazing line where he said he's the only person I ever knew who wasn't a brute and a fool <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's kind of a strong thing to say especially to the people around him <laughs> um, so, oh, all right.
Um, so what we'll do on Wednesday is um, you should start reading the prelude. Uh, the pre you're going to read the 1805 prelude, um, which is the one in this in the Norton um, um, critical edition. And um, what Wordsworth did, there's a reason to read um, the, 18 the 1805 prelude, which is, sorry, I'm just looking where it is. It starts on page 167 and ends on 381. So you do the math. One. 114 pages, um, 214 pages, um, and what Wordsworth did was he wrote this poem, which wasn't published till 1850. He finished a version, the version we're going to read in 1805, and it was supposed to be a kind of preface to the Recluse, which he never finished. Um, but he did tinker with the Prelude um, pretty much for the rest of his life. And whenever he tinkered with it, he made it worse as he got older. And so the, it was published in 1850, and that was the version that everyone read until the 20th century when people published the 1805 version. And the 1805 version is much better, so it's not Wordsworth's last version, but it, essentially it's the version of the last Wordsworth we still admire. Um, is the 1805 version. The 1850 version is great. There's no question about it. It's a great poem. But almost all the changes in the 1850 version were for the worse. So the 1805 version is the standard version that people read now. Um, so you should read, um, as I say, we'll look at the Lucy poems, but read the first book for Wednesday of the 1805 version. Read more if you can, um, but definitely read the first book for Wednesday. And those of you who are looking at the book on your computers or whatever it is that you're doing, you sorry, I already found something. Um, you found the eighteen oh five version. Okay, so um, do you want to send it to the other computer users? Do you know there? It's also like the first thing that pops up. Okay, fine. So Google Prelude eighteen oh five, and that's the one to read. Worth? Blake would have loved the calendar. Yeah. 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 I think so too. Yeah. No. I.